Hey, welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. Thank you for listening. I haven't asked this in a while, but will you go to Apple Podcast and rate and write a review of the podcast? Of course, a rating is, is quick. You can just hit those five stars. A review takes a little bit longer to write it. But I was just looking and I haven't had a review written since September 4th of 2021. And I've got a total of 58 five stars, one three star, and one one star. And so I think there's only 13 reviews written. But I would greatly appreciate it if you would go to Apple Podcast, write a review, or at least rate it, or on Spotify as well. I'm pretty new to Spotify, so I don't see any ratings there yet. And also share with a friend. That's probably the biggest compliment is to share it with someone else because you found something that you liked. So thank you for that. Now to get into my guest, Jenny Taylor, who is a mother of seven. Her husband, Brent, was deployed to Afghanistan. And at the request of her mother, she took a much-needed short trip with some college friends. I think this was actually a one-night trip. So not much, at least something. But in January of 2018, her husband, Major Brent Taylor, left his position as mayor of North Ogden, Utah, and deployed to Afghanistan with the U.S. Army for what would have been a, a year-long deployment. On November 3rd, 2018, Major Taylor was killed in action in a planned insider attack by one of the Afghan commandos he was training. In the months and years since Brent's shocking death, Jenny has unexpectedly and frequently found herself in a position to speak out about the price of freedom, the value of community support, and the healing that can be found when moving forward with a conviction to find hope and happiness in spite of life's heartache and pain. Please welcome Ms. Jenny Taylor. I would like to start out by talking about your husband, Brent. Why was he mayor of North Ogden, Utah? You know, the man just had a drive in him for a couple of things. One was to serve his community and his country. That was just a part of him from the get-go. I think another was he had a drive to try to make things better. You know, he was a he was a problem solver. He was a visionary. He was a very innovative thinker. And I think that's a perfect fit for people to go into political and public service because he could see, you know, a problem or a situation in our city and not just attack it and complain and say, oh, this is so terrible. But he could think, hey, we could we could do it this way or what if we approached it that way? And so he was really great at identifying room for improvement, and then finding ways to make that improvement happen. He was great with people. He was great with disagreeing people. And that's not always the case. You know, for me, my my feelings get hurt or my feathers get ruffled if I get in too much confrontation. And it's almost as if he could thrive in an environment of people with all kinds of passionate, different opinions. And his talent was bringing them to a conversation together to come to some kind of consensus. Now, that didn't mean everyone could get their way because, of course, you can't always let everyone have their way. But he could help people see in a different way. He could help people who disagreed maybe at least listen to each other. And he could listen to those maybe with whom he disagreed. And I think that was what his greatest talent or gift as a political leader was. He could see problems. He could see people he could bring people and resources together and find ways to really solve the problems and then innovate new ways of doing things. He was able to stay calm, it sounds like, and, and not much just more than I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we talked about that quite a bit. You know, small town politics can be really mean. It can be ugly. It can be accusatory. And it was always impressive to me. And now don't get me wrong. His feathers could get ruffled and he could get upset, but he had a way of of self-regulating and 
and working things through. He was really good at typing things out. You know, if he had an email or a Facebook response, he'd get all the emotion out and then he would step back and maybe edit it, have me review it. Same thing with a speech or a presentation he was preparing. He was very good at not reacting in the moment, but that doesn't mean he didn't have strong, passionate feelings and opinions. He just knew the right way to filter those. And then again, receive differing opinions in a way that was, I think, encouraging. It encouraged people to speak their mind. It encouraged people to give ideas and come up with new solutions because they weren't afraid that if they had the wrong idea or a different idea, it would get rejected. Mm-hmm. And that is not, not many of us have. I certainly don't. I, uh, <laughs> he, he was gifted with that. I don't know if you've ever watched Star Wars or any of your listeners, but you know, when the, when they're coming through and they're trying to pass through the gate, they kind of wave their hand in emotion and use the force to say, these are not the droids you're looking for. And, and I joke that Brent, Brent could do that. He could kind of wave his hands, proverbially speaking, and calm people down and get people to listen to each other and, present things in such a way that everyone came out feeling enlightened. I think people all came out feeling like they had contributed to the conversation. And half the time people came out thinking it was their idea in the first place. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you talk about leadership. I could, I could go on and on and on about the lessons on leadership. I learned from Brent Taylor, but um, in terms of serving as mayor, if you want to know how he really became mayor, I, I like to tell the story how he first ran for public office. He was a master's student at the University of Utah pursuing a master of public administration and the water utility bill came in the mail. I kid you not. And he was at class one day and he grabbed the mail on his way home and was looking through it. And in the water bill from the city was a little news notification saying there would be openings for the city council election coming up. That was the summer of 2009. And he sat through one of his, um, University of Utah classes after having gotten that notification, thought about it for a minute, came home from one night class about 10 o'clock in the evening and said, hey, I'm going to run for city council. <laughs> and I I just always laughed because, again, he saw there was a need. Mm-hmm. He found out there would be some openings. He could recognize you know, new ways to do things in the city or ways to improve things. And he didn't just sit back and finger point. He jumped in and said, well, I'll do it. I'll give it a go. So that's actually how he got into politics. He paid the utility bill and <laughs> and followed that news notification. And of course, four years on the city council led to his uh, new four years as mayor. And then he had been reelected to another four-year term prior to his deployment and his death. Yeah, so he probably, I imagine that you, just in your daily living, you drive around town and you see things. It's like, these potholes have got to be fixed. These street signs are crooked. Sure. These lights are out. <laughs> Is that kind of how he was? Like, look, every, this, we got to fix yeah, this. Why don't I know, just do it? Every city has that. And he was really economic minded as well. You know, we live in a, a fairly bedroom community. We don't have a huge business sector. We have a beautiful neighborhood community of, of houses and, and families and it's wonderful small town feel here but without some time of economic base a community like that will have very very high property taxes or very very low services and amenities and so he was really minded in looking at economics and looking at, at um, 
thoughtful business growth. You know, we have one little main street we call Washington Boulevard and then a thoroughfare uh, 2700 North where there's kind of a business district. And he began working with local business owners and business minded people to say, how can we grow enough of a business tax base that we can avoid massive property taxes while still having, you know, the police and public works services we all hope to have. And at the same time, how can we make life more convenient and, and suitable to people who live here by shopping locally or dining locally or mm-hmm. spending our dollars locally? And so he, you know, he would look at those things like the city services, snow plows, potholes, things that you've mentioned and recognize every one of those comes with a price tag. The question is, how do we want to pay that bill? Do we want it to be just through taxes or do we want to have some economic revenue from businesses and services that come in? And so that really motivated him. Again, very innovative, very visionary and very cautious, because, again, as a small town, people don't always like a lot of change and growth out of control can be very detrimental to the feeling of a community. But carefully thought through and with, you know, a large group of people involved and and the right systems in place, it can be a beautiful thing that benefits the community and, uh, you know, the tax base. So let's talk about his service, Jenny. And and, um, can you tell me uh, he was in the he was in the National Guard, in the Army National Guard, I believe. Yes. His last deployment. Can you take us from his last deployment, why he was on it, what he was doing and then (laughs) to his death, please? Yeah. You know, he was on that deployment because there's nothing you could do to keep that man away from serving our country. He It was his fourth combat deployment. He had always wanted to be a soldier. He was raised in a very patriotic-minded home. His mother, bless her heart, is an angel. Uh, Brent, at one point, there were six brothers in the same family, all serving in the Army National Guard. You know, now several of them have gotten out, and, of course, Brent's no longer with us. But So he had that base. He had that drive. And I will tell you, all four of his deployments were voluntary. All four of his deployments um, he he loved and learned from. And I feel like he really contributed to what was happening to an Iraq, to an Afghanistan. But this last one, I'll admit, came quite a bit out of the blue. You know, he he was deployed in 2007, 2008. So that was just right back to back, young, new in the Army. We had a couple little kids. He could not wait to get over and help fight these wars that had begun, you know, following 9-11 and different things. The third deployment was a couple years later in 2011. We had four kids at the time, and he was actually in the middle of his four-year term as a council member. And so he took a leave of absence. He was in the middle of his master's degree program. He took a leave of absence, and there was just that need at the time in Afghanistan for similar work that he had done in Iraq. And when he learned of that need, again, he couldn't sit back and say, oh, too bad there's a problem. He knew there was a problem. He knew how he had the skill set and the experience needed, and he knew he could he could answer that call. So that took us through the three deployments, the four kids, the beginning of politics, the master's degree. He then got home. We had our fifth, sixth baby. We bought a new home. He ran for mayor. He continued to serve in the National Guard as a part time soldier, you know, one week in the month, maybe a couple weeks in the year. He went to Japan or Korea. But I'll admit for a while in 2015, 16, 17, the Army was definitely a side thing. It was not the top thing. It was not the most of his time or the most of his effort. Most of that was his family and his political service until August of 2017. 
And at the time I was seven months pregnant with our seventh baby. And he was in the middle of his reelection campaign uh, for mayor. I'd mentioned he did four years on the council for his mayor and then was reelected. And he got called into a meeting in the headquarters for the Utah National Guard down in Draper, Utah. And he was asked something about serving in a, again, a critical need. A position was vacant in Afghanistan. It was, again, similar to work he had done before. He was uniquely qualified and experienced. And the conversation came up, sir, would you consider doing this? And, you know, the first thing he did, of course, was sent me a text message uh, through the media and just said, hey, when I get home, we need to talk. And, you know, after being married to someone for 15 years in the military, all these deployments in this public service, I knew him well enough to read between the lines of that very short text message. And when he said, hey, we need to talk when I get home, I just immediately sent him back and I said, where are you going? Kind of like, where do they need you? I already know you're going to go. I appreciate you asking me and I appreciate, you know, he was always very considerate of me and the kids. He never would have gone had we said no or not been 100% in his court for that service. But that's how that deployment began. So August, um, You know, the military, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of deployments that are planned and then changed and then on and then off again. And that's exactly what happened with this. And so we didn't make it public that he'd be deploying because we weren't certain it would happen. It was not with the Utah National Guard. It was actually with the Army Rangers out of Fort Benning in Georgia and Fort Lewis in Washington. And he would be coming on as an add-on, as an officer advisor, to go be an advisor among the special forces group of the Afghan military, basically trying to train them to take over their own security forces. And so it wasn't like his entire home unit was deploying and we knew it and we could plan on it and count down the days. It was maybe, maybe we need you. We think it will work. We've got a lot of paperwork to jump through. He wasn't an army ranger. So that was one thing, you know, was he qualified? Would they take him? So we kept it kind of quiet to ourselves, but planned on it happening. And it wasn't until actually January of 2018, literally about 10 days before he got on a plane that he made it public. By then, we'd gone back and forth with the Pentagon, we call it Big Army, back and forth with the Afghanistan group and the the Army units that would be going back forth, these Rangers. And so early January, he announced that he'd be leaving and left about 10 days later. And you can imagine there was kind of a shockwave. Most small town mayors don't leave to a combat zone. Most combat mayors aren't even in the military or um, real small town mayors. Most small town mayors don't have a wife and seven kids, you know. And at the time, our house had just had a terrible plumbing problem that led to flooding the house. And the kids and I had to live in temporary housing and remodel the entire thing. And so there was a lot going on at home Yeah. that because of his public service, It was very publicly known. So I was just overwhelmed. I had this brand new little baby that was a nursing baby. I had a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old. I mean, there was a lot happening. And he went off to war. And this community rallied around us and helped us get the house put back together, helped me with those kids, helped me try not to lose my mind, to be honest. And Brent did a great job with what he was doing, and he loved serving right with the Afghan people. He loved being with the Army Rangers and was so impressed by their work ethic and their strength and the skill set they had. It was a wonderful opportunity for him. 
He felt like he could contribute what he brought to the table. He had that political background that gives you a very diplomatic approach to things. And I think he was born with that diplomacy, but he was able to work with Afghan leadership in a way that very few other soldiers can because he had that the, the political mindset, we're talking about war, but there's the politics of war and there's the politics of a country and a government. And he just had this wonderful, unique set of skills and experience. So he was in Afghanistan, loving life, uh, living the dream, working so hard, really making wonderful relationships with these Afghan people. Jenny, where and was he? Do you know what province he was in? He was out. He was in Kabul. Kabul. Okay. So he was he was kind of right there um, on a small base called Camp Scorpion. And they, after his death, they actually renamed it to Camp Taylor. And that was a beautiful thing. But, you know, I'll tell you, he loved these Afghans. He would spend his free time with them. Obviously, he would work with his American counterparts and his NATO counterparts from Spain. But he mostly loved being with the Afghan people and the Afghan service members. So what would happen is every Friday, um, it was the holy day for the Afghans and those who were Muslim. And so they would have kind of their day off. And on Fridays... A bunch of Americans and NATO soldiers would hike a certain mountain. They call it the Gar, and they'd go on this great hike. Again, team building, relationship building, spending time together outside of the office setting. And then every Saturday, he would do a similar activity with the Afghans he was training. And he would go on a ruck march, which is basically a hike with your backpack and your boots. And, you know, Mm -hmm. most of us, when we go hiking or running, we put on Nikes and shorts and a T-shirt and get going. But in the military, a ruck march, full uniform, um, a lot of times loaded with your body armor, you've got 60 to 80 pounds of gear, and then you're on this rugged terrain. And Brent would go every Saturday with a group of these Afghans he was training. And it was physical fitness and relationship building. Again, he was always so mindful that people would be how solutions would be found and that these relationships were how we would strengthen the Afghan forces and just loved it. I've got pictures and video he would send from these weekly outings and they're laughing. They're listening to Afghan music or American music. They're getting stronger both mentally and physically. And it was on one of those ruck marches on a Saturday morning that Brent was killed. So what had happened was one of the men in the group of Afghan commandos, those special forces units he was training, had become radicalized. Now, unfortunately, this happens. Mm-hmm. You know, terrorism, terrorism is a mindset. It's a manipulative mindset. It's very powerful. It's very controlling. And um, we have certain processes in place as an American military to try to screen out these radicalizations, but it's impossible to always catch them all. And so there was this man who had continued serving with the Americans in an Afghan uniform against terrorism, but he himself was being indoctrinated by terrorism. And he looked at my husband and the work he was doing and this dramatic impact he was having and these relationships he was building, and he viewed him as an incredible threat. In fact, before the day of his death, this man made a cell phone video in which he declared he was going to kill Major Brent Taylor on November 3rd and that in doing so he would wipe out the American forces. And now you and I know that's ridiculous. Killing one soldier will never take away this great cause of America and the might of our military. But I look at that as very insightful and reflecting on the work Brent was doing. The work he was doing was seen as such a threat to the enemy 
that they thought that if they removed him, they would remove the threat. And of course, the threat being freedom and democracy and, and everything our servicemen and women are trying to offer around the world. So it was a Saturday morning like any other. They were on their hike like any other. They were, I'm sure, laughing and, and racing each other and trying to see who's the strongest like any other. And in a moment, um, a couple shots were fired. My husband had a young infantry soldier from the American Army who was basically his bodyguard, his security detail, and he heard the shots and immediately went down, saw my husband go down and thought my husband was taking cover because, of course, when you hear shots, you take cover. And in in a very few moments, they realized that my husband had been shot and instantly killed. And this young soldier, this private Jesse Brown, had also been shot. But fortunately, that second bullet grazed him. He's He's got actual grazing across his back where the bullet just whizzed right by. But he was he was safe and he was alive. So that is that is the day he died. And then, of course, you can imagine the reaction. There was a, a lot of chaos and commotion. Among all the Afghans who, you know, one of their own had just killed one of their own. That's how they felt. And the killer was immediately killed by by others in the group. And, and the medics came, and the helicopter came, and they did everything they could to save my husband's life. But it was determined he was already gone. He had he had been killed and he was he was shot in the head, not to be too graphic, but it was mercifully it was an, an instant death. And that, of course, began this new chapter of the life for me and my kids that we had no idea. It was first thing in the morning on a Saturday, which means it was the middle of the night, Friday night to Saturday for us here in the States. And first thing our morning was when we got a knock on the door from the notification team from the army. So Jeannie, uh, was he shot behind? Yes. <clears throat> shot behind, behind in the head. One shot. One shot. I mean, you know, I think about that all the time. What if that guy had been a bad shot? What if he'd missed? What if he'd been off an eighth of an inch, you know? And, yeah. and what ifs don't do a lot of good. But but again, mercifully, it, it could have been so much worse. There could have been mass casualties that day. There could have been so many gone. Um, or, you know, Brent could have suffered a lot. What if he'd been fatally wounded but in a way that he he struggled? I, I can't imagine if he knew he was about to die. I can't imagine the heartache he would feel for me for our kids, for his mom. Yeah. I'm grateful to know that if he had to go, he could go very quickly. And because again, he loved it. He loved them. He loved the people. He loved the work he was doing. He loves the cause of this country. And in serving around the world, he knew he was really serving me and our family and our own country. It wasn't a matter of choosing them over us or leaving over staying home. For him, it was all one. And I find great peace in knowing that. And again, I was fortunate to spend 15 years living with that man. Uh, you know, even when we were separated a, a good amount of our marriage through military service, we had that kind of connection. We had those conversations. In fact, two weeks before he was killed, one of his close Afghan counterparts was also killed in an insider attack. And we talked about that, how awful it is, how tragic it is that the Afghan um, mindset for those with the, the terrorism mindset would view the American way of life as an enemy. And, and there wasn't anger when I spoke to him. We weren't angry that the Taliban was so awful or angry that the terrorists were, were killing everyone. It was a true, you know, a pathos. It was a heartache. I wish they could see that we're just trying to help. I wish they could understand what we want to offer and that we're not trying to take over or come or conquer. You know, America is not a conquering country. But 
we had those in-depth conversations between politics, philosophy, military service, to where I am grateful I can know that man loved his country and loved the cause for which he was fighting enough I know he was willing to die for it. I, I also know he didn't think he would die for it. He was confident he would be back. Never once did he say, um, you know, he felt his time was coming or he was worried or scared. He had plans for decades of, of a full life after serving. But I also think that lack of fear over the possibility of dying led him to be an incredible soldier because he didn't live with that fear. He gave his all every single day, confident he'd live through it. And I believe that made him a wonderful soldier to the very last breath. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that part. Afghanistan was probably 10 and a half hours ahead of you. Yep, exactly. So, <laughs> you know the time zone. <laughs> speaking of, so notification. Now, Jeannie, I think your circumstances were you, were, you weren't actually home. Yeah, uh, will you describe how this notification <laughs> process worked for you? Yeah, so there's a certain protocol in the military, and it's the same, you know, with police or fire or someone's killed in the line of duty, where the the military in this case will notify me first. I am Brent's primary next of kin as his legal spouse, and, you know, I am the person. And until they notify me face-to-face, -face, they will not tell anyone else. They will not call me and tell me. They will not uh, put it on the news. There is protocol to call, follow. So they knocked on the doors about 9 in the morning. And my little boy, who at the time would have been, you know, six or seven, answered the door. My mom was with the kids because I had been out with some girlfriends. It was a really long deployment. I, I'd mentioned the house was flooded. I had the baby. I had all these kids. And my mom and mother-in-law had convinced me that weekend to go spend one night with my old college roommates from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. And it had just been my birthday. It had been our 20th reunion from our freshman year of college and we had tried all year to set something up and it just couldn't happen I had seven kids it's impossible to leave but my mom and my mother-in-law convinced me I left Friday night I was going to come back Saturday at like noon really quick got away so when those soldiers knocked on the door my little boy answered you know grandma of course came to the door first thing you can imagine a Saturday morning with grandma and seven little kids running around yeah, yeah. so she called me and I, I looked at my phone. I thought, oh, my gosh, who's broken their arm? Who's burned the house down? Yeah. Remember, it was my mom who said, get out of here. My mom who said, we got this. Don't worry. We'll take care of the kids. You need a break. And I did. I was losing my mind. I'm Certainly. not going to lie. So when the phone rang, I just thought, oh, but I didn't worry. It was just more like, oh, my goodness, what's gone wrong already? And my mom said, Jenny, wherever you are, you might want to hit your knees. There's two Army officers at your door. And I mean, I just shock, you know, you're living in a horrible nightmare or a movie or something. And I, I, I fell to my knees, my stomach fell to the floor and I, I took the phone. They, my mom handed her phone to the officers and they said, is this Mrs. Taylor? I said, yes. And again, because of that protocol, they couldn't say anything except they needed to tell me something. And so I was in Provo. My home is in North Ogden. It's about an hour and a half difference. And we agreed that they would drive south and I would drive north because I told them I, I, I'm an hour and a half away. You're there with all of my kids. I can't wait hours and hours for you to tell me what you need to tell me. What's our best bet? So we ended up meeting 
at that same headquarters building of the Utah National Guard, that same building in Draper. Is this Camp Brent- Williams? No, this would be okay. the Draper headquarters building right off of I-15. Okay. Separate from Camp Williams. But it was the same building where Brent was when he first found out about this deployment possibility and sent me a text saying, hey, we need to talk. So I I got in the car. I actually didn't even have a car because I had taken public transportation to meet up with my friends. And so one of my girlfriends was awake. Again, it's first thing Saturday morning. The the rest of the ladies were still asleep or, or in their rooms or what I don't know. And I, I said to my roommate, and I, I feel terrible because I'm sure I scarred her for life. I just said, Brent might be dead. I need a ride. And we drove to the headquarters building and, and, you know, my mind racing, thinking maybe he's injured. Maybe he's been medically evacuated. Maybe he's paralyzed. Maybe he's disabled and going everywhere I could in my mind without letting my mind go to, you know, maybe he's gone. And, um, we pulled into that national guard headquarters building. We parked right out front and your friend was with you. Is that what you said? My friend, yep. My okay. friend was with me, and and we we pulled right there, and immediately the state chaplain was right out front waiting for us, and we walked through the door, and a soldier was holding the front door, and a soldier was holding the next door, and a soldier was holding the hall door. I swear to you, it felt like there were a billion doors in that corridor that we walked through, and what I noted immediately was how stiff every single soldier stood at each door. And no one would look at me. No one. And so as I'm taking each step toward this conference room where we will meet, the weight of the reality of the moment was just devastating. No one was, hi, ma'am. How are you? Good morning, Mrs. Taylor. You know, there was the, the stiffness in their bodies. They, of course, knew. They knew why I was there. And so we went into that room. Um, the two casualty notification officers, again, the only two authorized to speak only to me first, arrived. And I uh, just remember, you know, it's a blur, but I remember what they said. They have a very scripted statement to make. Uh, Mrs. Taylor, on behalf of the Department of the Army, we regret to inform you. And then the sentence continued that Brent had been killed that morning on a ruck march. And I remember my first reaction was, are you kidding me? They killed him on a hike? Like this man's been deployed four times with the Taliban and ISIS and terrorism and night raids and everything else. And they killed him on a hike. And I I, I did not cry. I did not scream and yell. I went into the only thing I can describe it as shock. And I began pacing the room and thinking through everything that now needed to be done. We've got to tell his mother. This is going to kill his mother. His mother had already buried a son. She lost a son to suicide in 2011, and now she's going to bury another son. We've got to tell my seven children. We've got to tell the entire city, this entire city that has this beloved mayor who's a serviceman and a statesman, and he's not coming home. And so we we spent the next hour or so in that conference room, you know, making phone calls. The, the first thing we did, once I knew, there was another set of soldiers in uniform who could notify Brent's parents. They're the secondary next of kin. So once I was officially notified, they were officially notified. They were at a service project at the local church building near their home. And soldiers came in and sat down and told them, which, of course, was terrible. And then we began 
reaching out to different siblings. Um, my mom, of course, you can imagine, was in a panic because she knew what she didn't know, but she knew. So in the meantime, my mom and my sister had left all of the kids with grandpa and my sister's husband, and they had immediately begun driving. So they arrived to that headquarters building, you know, within a decent amount of time after I was notified. And, you know, it's one of those days where I'll never forget any, it's blurry, but I'll never forget it. I don't know if that makes sense. I almost contradicted myself, but it's a, it felt almost out of body about 30 or 40 minutes into it. I realized I hadn't eaten anything that day. I, you know, I'd woken up on a Saturday morning and, and I could feel my body just giving up. Yeah. And giving out. And I remember asking, is there any food here? Like, I literally am going to faint. And they scrambled around everyone trying to help this poor new war widow and fumbling in, in their best efforts. And they came in with a juice box, you know, like a little kid would have yeah. in their lunch. Yeah. A teeny tiny little straw that you poke through the hole. And I remember in that moment with great clarity thinking, as I'm drinking through this itty bitty teeny tiny straw, I was really drinking through a fire hydrant and I felt like I was trying to drink from that fire hydrant through that teeny tiny straw. I mean, that's the best way I can describe the overwhelm of that moment. Yeah. So from that moment on, it got, there's a lot of things that happen, a lot of things that have to happen. And Brent's body has to come back to the States for the dignified transfer. There's a dignified arrival in your home. How did you function during, and then, you know, there's, there are, I don't know how many memorial services you had. There's yeah. also a, a funeral. How did you, how did you even function over those next, in that period of maybe a week to two weeks of, or however long it yeah, was? So the only, the only way is by the grace of God. And I would say the prayers of millions of people who, you know, had, had heard the news either in our city or, or around the country. And, um, I, like you said, so the first thing that happened, he died on a Saturday. The news conference announcing his name to the public was on Sunday. I got on a plane on Monday morning to fly to Dover Air Base in Delaware. Did you go by yourself or who went with you? I took my two older boys and my husband's parents. Okay. The Army, the policy was we could take two people, and I just felt like there's no way that would work. I have seven kids and my husband's parents, so the Army gave us uh, permission to take me plus four. So my two boys, we, I had planned to take my two oldest kids. You know, my kids are young. That's a lot for a young child to, to witness and experience. I had planned to take my oldest daughter and my oldest son. And my oldest daughter just didn't want to go. And she wasn't up to it emotionally. And I said, absolutely. There's no way I'll, you know, I'll drag you there, or force you there or what. So she chose to stay home. And I took my two boys that were 10 and 10 and almost 12. And then, uh, my parents in law went. We traveled all day. You know, if you haven't seen the movie Taking Chance, I would encourage people to watch it because they do a good job kind of portraying what that journey is like. Yeah. We got to Dover Air Base later that afternoon. I never saw the sun in the entire time we were in Dover. We landed in dark rain. Uh, Brent's body ended up being transferred at about 3 in the morning from Monday night to Tuesday morning. And so it was dark then. It was very foggy. It happened to be election day. Believe it or not, that Tuesday morning when he came home and I found that beautifully ironic and painful at the same time that this wonderful soldier statesman came home on the day of a free election in a country he loved so much. Yeah. Um, 
then we came home right after the dignified transfer. I, I met with the media for the first time and, and spoke about our family's feelings about this experience, which opened an entire floodgate of media that I hadn't ever been able to imagine. The very next day was Wednesday. I met with all the adults in the family on my side and Brent's and said, um, you know, we're going to let this be public because for one, I know that's what Brent would do. Brent was very open with the media as a mayor. He was very open with communicating with people. He didn't fear what the news might say or try to keep secrets or hide things. And the other thing, this is not just our story. This is not just our loss. And America needs to see, you know, what this is like, this price of freedom. And as I began to realize the interest the media would have because this mayor died in war with seven kids, the thought came to me, if they're going to talk about us, they're going to talk to us. If anyone's telling the story of Brent and Jenny Taylor family, I want it to be us. I want to speak for him and not have some reporter assume they know how he feels or how we feel. So um, we waited another week. The following Wednesday, his body was returned to Utah. And as you mentioned, they did a beautiful honorable transfer at the Salt Lake Air Base with local soldiers and, and family that were able to be there, all of the children, all of the aunts and uncles, all of the cousins, all of my siblings and Brent's. And then the funeral and viewing were that Friday and Saturday. And it was it was a heavy time. I look back and think I was carried through that time, absolutely. I could feel the power of people when they said, we're praying for you and our thoughts are with you. I, I would say I know because otherwise I wouldn't be standing. And it was a beautiful service. Um, so many people came out to help, it made it almost like a state funeral. It was so beautifully put together. Two of my sisters-in-law got photos and, and memorabilia to really make sure people could see who Brent was as a person with these uh, displays and things. The funeral service was incredible. We had um, one of Brent's brothers spoke. One of his best friends in politics spoke. The general um, who was over the National Guard at the time, Jefferson Burton, spoke. And then a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Quorum of the Seventy, spoke, who happened to have been the president of my mission when I served as a missionary, you know, almost 20 years ago. So beautiful music, beautiful patriotism. I felt like I was watching one of the most inspiring movies I've ever seen. And my heart was so full of that patriotism and that love and then in a moment, I would realize, oh, my goodness, I'm the star of this movie. This isn't a movie, but, you know, my my reality, my kids reality. So it was it was beautiful. It was only by the grace of God and good people that we were standing. We were loved. I feel like that love has continued to this day and kept us on our feet. But it was a remarkable, humbling opportunity. And I use that word very carefully. It was an opportunity to be on the other side of what freedom is. You know, I have seen and experienced things that most of America never will. And I'm grateful most of America never will. But prior to having my children, I was a teacher in high school. I taught history and government. I've loved this country since I was a little kid. And here I was on some of the most sacred ground in one of the most sacred experiences this country's ever gone through, you know, over and over and over again, but very few people. I, I didn't watch the movie. I lived it. And that has been life changing for me because it's given me a chance to really dig deep down in my soul and ask myself if I really believe this, do I really believe in 
freedom. Patriotism looks good on a t-shirt and a bumper sticker. And here I was with the chance to actually ask myself, consider all my convictions through my 39 years of life. And I'm proud to say I've come to the conclusion that yes, I really believe this. I know Brent really believed in this. He believed in it enough to die for it. And that two-week period between his death and his burial, I think, laid an incredible foundation for what will probably be the next you know, four or five decades of my life waiting until the day I get to see him again. Many, many people have done many things to support you and your family, especially during that those first few weeks, I'm sure. What would you say... For someone now listening, what advice do you give people of what they can do to what can they say or do to help people in similar circumstances like you were in or just in in tough circumstances? Yeah, How do you help um, somebody, especially if you're not even really close to them? Yeah, that, that's such a hard question, because, of course, every person is so different. And maybe what helps me might not help someone else. The first piece of advice I would give is do something. Do something or say something. I think sometimes we worry so much about doing or saying the wrong thing that we do nothing. You know, sometimes we try so hard to say the perfect thing and we know we can't possibly say the perfect thing. And so we say nothing. I would say if you're trying to help someone who's going through a hard time, whether it's a death, combat, cancer, illness, divorce, whatever, the easiest thing, the best thing to do or say is just express your sorrow and your love. Don't feel like you need to fix that problem or be the solution or have a magic wand and make it all better. Because guess what? You can't. If someone has died or had cancer, there's nothing you can do in that moment that's going to magically fix it. So instead, I would encourage people to focus on helping others face it. Again, there's a difference between trying to fix it and helping them face it. Is there anything you would say for people not to say? One of the things I would encourage people not to say is that it must have been his time or he's in a better place or God must have needed a hero. Mm -hmm. Now, I can believe all of those things and be fine with all of those things. And I know wherever he is is far better than where I'm stuck. But I think sometimes we try to make it again. We're trying to fix it. So we'll say, oh, he must be in a better place or God needed him more or it must have been his time. And I think all of those things dismiss the fact that we really needed him here. And we wanted more time with him here. And if the place where he is is so much better, then why in the world am I stuck in this one? And so I would encourage people not to say things that might come across as dismissive. Um, I think particularly in the faith culture, and I'm a very faithful person, sometimes we express our faith as a way of wanting to make it better. But... Almost as if, oh, well, he's, God will help you and, and you'll be fine, which is true. God will help me and I know we'll be okay. But let it be difficult. If you don't know what to say, just say, I'm so sorry. Yeah. If you don't know how to fix it, don't try. One of the best things one of my friends did, one of those same college roommates, she just said, Jenny, this sucks. I'm so sorry. And I thought, you know what? That's it. <laughs> She didn't give me a, yeah, but this is terrible, but you'll be fine. Or this is terrible, but families are forever. She just let it be terrible. Let it be terrible. Sit with people. Don't feel like you even have to say a thing. The people who were the most helpful were the ones who showed up. I will tell you, people really want to help someone in a tricky situation. One thing probably not to ask is, how can I help? 
or what yeah. do you need? Yep. That's a hard question to ask when you're emotionally overwhelmed. You could say, for example, would it be more helpful if I ran some errands for you or watch the kids so you could run the errands? Or if you want to bring someone dinner, you could say, do you guys want to eat some chicken and rice or do you feel more like ham and potatoes? Do you want me to take out the trash or, you know, something like that? Think of something you think you would need if you were in the situation the other person is in. And then maybe ask the person with very small choices. If you say, what do you need or how can I help? My mind goes crazy because I need everything and I need all the help and I can't articulate one thing. But if you're trying to really help someone, sometimes giving those simple choices, could I do this or that? What if I helped with this or the other? Then that that is very helpful. Um, simplify and then sometimes just think, well, you know the trash needs to be taken out, so maybe just take the trash out. And you know they're going to need some food, so maybe drop some food off. And maybe don't feel like you have to have a deep, heartfelt discussion every time. Maybe just drop the food off or just take yeah. the trash out and give people space. Maybe just sit there while they cry or, or think. And then one last thing I would say, particularly when you're talking about loss that is death, Talk about the person. If you run into me at the grocery store six weeks after my husband died and it's so awkward for you that you don't know what to say, that you turn down the other aisle to avoid me, like that's that's hard. Guess what? I know you know my husband has died. And even if you don't say it, I still know it. So sometimes people are hesitant to bring Brent up or they're hesitant to talk about it because they think in the moment, maybe they'll remind me and make me very sad. Well, guess what? I remember. I don't need you to remind me my husband is gone. I always remember. So if you say something like, oh, I remember the time Brent did dot, 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 or man, I wish Brent was here to talk about what's going on in Ukraine or something like that. You know how beautiful that is? Because it shows me you miss him too. And you remember him too. You don't have to wait for me to bring up the deceased person. It's okay for you to bring him or her up. Now, when you bring him or her up to someone who has loved and lost, you might evoke emotion. And I think that's beautiful. If you talk to me about a memory you have with Brent and maybe we're laughing one moment and I'm crying the next, isn't that wonderful? Because we remember him and we love him and we miss him. So if you're walking through life with someone who has lost someone to some kind of death, talk about that person. Remember that person. Maybe every once in a while on a birthday or anniversary or random day, send a text to the person and say, hey, oh, man, just thinking of Brent today. Wish he were here. Something made me think of him, made me smile, made me miss him. You remembering my person and then telling me that is one of the most beautiful gifts you can give to me as I grieve that person. That's beautiful. I agree a hundred percent. Jenny, how do you keep Brent alive in your home? Your children, you know, they need a dad. How do you do it? Well, you know, that's the hardest one. And, and one that I will admit, sometimes I get frustrated in my mind and I'm half talking to him wherever he is saying, you need to be here. I need you here. So fortunately we have a lot of memories. The older kids have more memories, of course, than the younger kids. Brent was really good at taking pictures and even random videos on his old BlackBerry phone. We used to make fun of him because he'd pull his phone out at dinner and, you know, film the kids eating green beans or something totally normal. 
and now what great treasures those are. Yeah. So we, you know, we got stories to share, memories to share, of course, photos in the home. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is he just still is part of our family. And so when it's Easter and we have peeps that are nasty marshmallow candy to most of the world, but we know dad loved peeps. We laugh and talk about how, man, dad would have loved these peeps. Or I'm not sure dad would have liked the new flavor because he was kind of a traditional guy. Or yesterday I was at a birthday party with my cousins and my cousin mentioned something about Brent and his truck and, and just a memory. So we try to just make it as natural as it can be. It's not tiptoed around. And, and we'll even say sometimes things like, I'm sorry, your dad is dead. Or I'm sorry, you have a deceased parent. You know, it gets tricky for kids the first day of school. Maybe they have to fill out a little paper all about me. And it says, you know, what's your mom's name? What's your dad's name? What does your mom do? What does your dad do? And so my daughter on the first day of school sent me a picture with a, a text message of that worksheet. She's like, what do I put? What, what, what do I put? I said, she's like, do I just put he's dead? I'm like, well, you could put that he's deceased. That's that's factual. It's okay to say that. But you could also put what he did do. You know, he he is dead now, but he was alive for a long time, and he lives on with us. So I think a lot of it is in the conversation and the tone. And to be honest, that I think a lot of it's yet to be seen. I lost my dad as a kid, uh, not in the military. I lost my dad to suicide. And I will tell you, I grieved him far worse later in life than I did immediately. I grieved him when I was 16 and learning to drive and starting to date and going to prom and he wasn't there. I grieved him the day I graduated, the day I got married, the day I had a baby, the day my own husband died. These waves of grief don't just get packed up with the funeral or the first year or even the first several years. So I know my kids have a long road ahead of them where there will be moments where everyone's happy and living a beautiful life. And in an instant, they really miss their dad. And so I, I don't have the answer of how do you how do you do that perfectly? I don't know. But I do know that every step of the way we will take Brent with us in memory, in photo and video that we share, in stories that we tell. And I hope that any of his friends and family members who also have memories of him will continue to remember him with us, tell my kids about him, tell my kids the funny things he used to do in high school or what it was like to be a soldier with Major Taylor. I only have my own set of memories to share with my kids. And there are other people in this world who have their memories that I hope they will also share with us to help us keep him alive in our family. I agree. I, I do that too. And, and I ask people, especially early on and I, and I didn't want them to try to make Mark sound like something he wasn't, but just tell me a story, right. whatever it is. Right. And I just heard a new story about him just a few weeks ago. I was listening to a podcast and someone was that knew Mark, my brother, Mark was telling a story I'd never heard before. Are you kidding? And, and I sent it to my parents and because yeah. I knew they would love that. And I appreciate that you mentioned, I don't just need the hero stories. I want the regular person stories because I don't want my kids growing up thinking their dad was only this famous war hero politician. Guess what? He was Brent Taylor. He was a man. He had flaws. He was funny. He was goofy. He was, you know, quirky. Let the full person live. That's right. Well, we, we do a good job immortalizing people after they die and we share their strengths and the good times, which is beautiful. 
but I don't want my kids to ever have this concept that their dad was more than human and they could never live up to that. Or, you know, I want them to feel connected to him. I love that you had someone tell you a story about your brother as, as a brother, as a person, mm-hmm. as a man. And, and so anyone, another tip of advice, if you know someone who's lost someone, don't hoard the memories you have of someone else's person. Share them. The the day-to-day, the silly, the mundane, you might think it's just the most insignificant memory you have. Share it with them. Jenny, in closing, what would you like to say about Brent and his service, You know, your family, the Major Brent Taylor Foundation, any of that? Oh, my goodness. I'm grateful to know that though my husband has died, his legacy can live on. It can live on through these beautiful children who have several of his personality traits. I see pieces of him in each of them. This foundation that we've started in his memory, the Major Brent Taylor Foundation, focuses on training, honoring, and engaging. Training people to be service-oriented leaders, honoring men and women in all kinds of uniform, and engaging in meaningful conversation and service. And that's the legacy that I hope carries on. Brent Taylor wore a lot of hats in life. He was a husband, a father, a mayor, a major. You could go on and on. In everything, he was a leader. He was a principled leader. He was a service-oriented leader. And it's that leadership that I hope um, long outlasts even me, all of us as a family, this legacy of sacrifice before self. I know Brent is proud to have given his life for our country, even though I also know he wished he had 50 more years to serve his family and his country. I know he doesn't regret loving those Afghan people and putting his full heart in his service. I know he doesn't regret serving in politics and and trying to make a difference and sometimes getting those feathers ruffled, but coming to a consensus and working out innovative ways to solve problems. I know, though, he didn't live as long as we hoped he would. He lived a very intentional and full life. And that is inspiring to me. I hope it's inspiring to my children that they'll look at that and say, I have no idea how much time I have in this life. So I'm going to use the time that I have as best I can. I'm going to give of myself. I'm going to serve. Brent was willing to love and to lead. And he was never held back by fear. He never stood in a corner afraid of what might happen. Sometimes he failed. And then he picked himself back up. Or sometimes he failed And he let others help pick him back up. And I think that is the legacy above all that I hope my children and I, our nieces and nephews, Brent's brothers and sisters, you know, my future grandchildren that will never get to know this man, except for the stories we tell. I hope that's the legacy they cling to for Brent Taylor. Any bitterness, Jeannie? Uh, no, and I that's I don't want anyone to think I'm like this angelic person because I have plenty of bitterness in my life, and uh, I can be I can be a fairly grumpy person and complain about things all the time. I consider that one of the greatest graces of God in all of the emotions I have felt. I do not feel angry. I'm not angry at the man who shot him. I'm not angry at the government for sending him. I'm not angry at Afghanistan. Um, I'm not angry at God. I'll say it's bittersweet that he's not here, but I don't have the bitterness. I sometimes have frustration. I have a lot of emotion. There's moments where I just feel overwhelmed and can't do this another day and don't even want to. But I'm grateful that that bitterness of all the other emotions to deal with, I'm grateful that bitterness is not there. And that that is a true gift of God. Well, it's been a pleasure.
thank you for sharing about thank you. and your family. Well, thank you for what you're doing in, in Mark's memory and legacy and your family and just these conversations that are so important. And I am honored to have been able to share a little of our family story with you today.